Hello everyone, uh, welcome to episode 11 of Ouijacast. Uh, we're still in quarantine life, which is all the fun and games that everyone doesn't get to go outside. Uh, this week uh, we've got Mr. Dave Kennedy, uh, also known as Hacking Dave. Um, so as we kind of start the podcast, we tend to ask who our guest is and uh, what they do. So Dave, who are you and what do you do? Hey Andy, thanks for having me on and Dave, I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, Coming on and talking to you folks, uh, my name is Dave Kennedy. I've been in the information security space now for, gosh, uh, 20 years, uh, which means I'm getting old. Uh, but I you know, <laughs> have had a long career, I guess, in, in information security, um, everything from being a chief security officer for a Fortune 1000 company to working in the military intelligence side, uh, doing cyber warfare. Uh, I have my own two companies, uh, Trusted Second Binary Defense, where we focus on you know, information security consulting and monitoring detection, uh, more of an MSSP type of the Type of the thing, and um, and really, uh, you know, my whole focus has always been both offense and defense, and helping companies get better with with security. Um, but wrote a number of open source tools, uh, Magic Unicorn, the Pentesters framework, um, you know, a number of different tools out there for for helping people do assessments and testing, and, and did a lot of security research. Uh, so that's that's really a little bit of background about myself. I've been on the TV show Mr. Robot. Um, you know, I've testified in front of Congress on a number of occasions, uh, and uh, that's 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 a little bit of my background. Oh man, thanks. Uh, you basically—it's funny because see, before we do, <laughs> do, do we do the show, uh, we tend to um, we like to do a bit of kind of research, uh, just get obviously who we're having on, so we can ask the best possible questions. And you've just rhymed off pretty much everything there, and all of it is incredibly <laughs> interesting. Uh, so yeah, we'd love to—I'd love to touch upon like pretty much, pretty much everything that was there. But um, just I guess um, so. I'm quite new to security uh, myself, so uh, it's only been in the last year that I've kind of started uh, kind of working towards this uh, kind of career path with kind of aim of maybe kind of going down the kind of pen testing route and keeping my options pretty open. Obviously, it's such a wide area, but um, your name's one of the first ones that come up. I think it's one of the, one, the first ones that come up when you you know type in like how to learn to hack on Google um, and uh, some of the stuff, for example, like the tools. Um, there was a, a there was a video that I saw of you when we kind of started uh, when I was starting out. Uh, I think it was it was on an American TV show anyway. But I think you're basically doing like a a, a fishing phone call. Um, and yeah, that that was one of the first things I saw that kind of really kind of got me interested in the social engineering side of things. Is that one of is that just one area of many interests for you in the kind of security world? Um, what kind of led to you making your social engineering toolkit? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, what's what's interesting is is kind of how the the industry has has changed over the past twenty years since I've I've been in it. You know, it was really focused on uh, uh, initially, you know, very much exploit research. You know, uh, how do you most effectively break into things? You know, I remember when the, the Call of Dead Cows or CDC was releasing back orifice, and you know, the the, the industry is at such a new uh, beginning where security really wasn't baked in uh, to to anything that was being done on the internet. Uh, you know, companies didn't even have firewalls at this point in time uh, for the most part. And, you know, you kind of see the evolution and, and what, what happened with, with me and, and, and what, what I really liked about social engineering is I very much started my career off um, when I got out of the military. Uh, working more on, on penetration testing was kind of the, the big thing for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, with penetration testing, nobody was doing social engineering as part of, of their, their penetration tests. And uh, what, what had happened was uh, I was part of, of a group um, that ha at this point had not been called offensive security yet. It was, it was prior to offensive security being started. And I was part of a group called Remote Exploit. And uh, Mutz was there that, that started, you know, uh, Backtrack and WAPIX and IWACS. 
And, uh, you know, just a number of us were, were, were in this um, IRC channel and just kind of hanging out all the time. We were part of the, the mod team. And um, I had just joined the Backtrack development team uh, and I was working with them, uh, which formerly became, you know, uh, Kali Linux. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a, a guy in there uh, named Chris Hanegian, a really funny story behind Chris. Um, my whole life has been, he's also known as, as Human Hacker. I'm sorry, not Human Hacker. Uh, uh, um, Chris and Nagy, uh, Logan, WHD, uh, are also known, you know, from socialengineer.org and socialengineer.com. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, Chris had, had just joined the channel, uh, and, and, and I was, a I was a, a mod or an admin in, in the IRC chat and, um, Chris had just joined the channel and he was coming in and, and was asking a bunch of questions around, you know, like, Hey, how do I get my wireless drivers to work with, you know, uh, um, packet injection and, 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 uh, going in, in promiscuous mode and all this other stuff or monitor mode. And, um, and so, uh, I was like, oh, Hey man, you know, just go to this website over here. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, th this will tell you how to do everything. And it was a, one of those shock sites that has horrible things on the, on, on their pages. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, so it went to this horrible, horrible, horrible page. And it's funny cause you see Logan WHD, you know, just left the, 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 the chat room or the IRC chat room. He just leaves, he just quits out. <laughs> And so we're all giggling and laughing. This is actually how a lot of the try harder mentality came initially out of remote exploit. And granted, I, you know, I want to emphasize things have changed quite a bit. You know, it's, you know, the mentality back then was, you know, you, you should try to figure it out on your own, push yourself harder, yeah. figure it out on your own, because that's how hackers kind of think, right? There was no tutorials or courses or instruction sets or things like that out there. It was, it was really what you could figure out and what you could learn. And then people would help you if you had, you know, ran, ran into roadblocks and things like that. So, you know, I don't. I want to emphasize today. It's a lot different where we have resources and people teaching and things like that. It's a lot different now than it is back then. But back then, we would, you know, kind of make fun of folks and, and you know, kind of troll a little bit here and there. And so, uh, a few minutes later, uh, Chris comes back into the the chat room, and he's like, "Man, some a hole, you know, just uh, sent me this horrible site and blah blah blah. I can't believe somebody would do that." And he couldn't remember who the name was that did it. <laughs> and so I was like, "Oh man, you know, we booted that guy. He's he's no longer here. Here, just go to this site. It'll help you out." And uh, he went to this site. It was another. It was a different shock site, and, uh, and that that was my introduction to, to meeting Chris. We actually became really good friends um, over the past, you know, over the over the span of several years. And my whole life has been messing with him. My whole life. I have stories upon stories of how I've just trolled Chris throughout my my career. <laughs> but but what happened with social engineering is, you know, Chris and I were were talking in IRC one day, and uh, you know, Chris and, and I were just talking about how how social engineering was such a viable attack method that. Nobody was using it. And, you know, you, you heard stories, obviously, with like Kevin Mitnick and everything else that had happened yeah. kind of before in the past. But it wasn't being incorporated into assessments. It wasn't being used as part of a, a risk factor for organizations or understanding their threat models. And we really looked at this as kind of the next evolution of, of attacks that were going to happen out there. And so Chris, um, Chris and I worked together and, you know, he built out socialengineer.org, which outlined, you know, kind of what organizations can do. Uh, to, to understand the risks around social engineering. And at the same time, I had built the social engineer toolkit, um, which is really focused on, on the technical aspects around targeting companies and understanding the risks that they have uh, with social engineering. So it really spawned, you know, the social engineer toolkit really spawned out of the need to show uh, and validate that social engineering was going to be the next level of attack that we saw out there um, and, and really kind of move that industry forward because we were, we were grossly unprepared to handle it. So it was, well, it was the first tool that I'm aware of um, that was just specifically designed to for for phishing and social engineering and all those different things that it did. Um, you know, I remember the first attack it had, and it was the Java applet deployment attack, where Java, Java was used across the entire 
entire world. And uh, you know, as soon yeah. as you went to it, it would have you prompt to, to open it up. You'd open it up, and you get remote code execution. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's it's those types of things that that you know I think really drove the the social engineering pieces forward, and it really kind of started it off for for a whole new a whole new different part of the industry. Well, that's incredible as well. So you've um... Whenabouts was it? When did you first develop the social engineering toolkit? Yeah, roughly in period in time. So it would have been probably around 2007 uh, is when I think I first released the social engineering toolkit. Is your 2006 or 2007 was when the the first iteration of of Set came out? Yeah, that's incredible. And did you see when you just developed Set? Did you did that spawn you to kind of write the pen tester framework and stuff off the back of that, or is, or is there a different trolling story behind that? oh man i i can go on about all the trolling stories i got one last one i'll tell you with chris is uh after that chris chris hated me uh and uh and we're not friends i can't can't imagine why yeah i can't imagine why it gets worse it gets way worse um i don't know why i i I latched on to chris in this way Uh, but it's been such a great you know friendship after this you know we've been trolling each other at DerbyCon and you know going back and forth but uh it was funny because um uh mutt's became really good friends with Chris and, uh, and Chris hated me, but it was, you know, so it's kind of like that awkward relationship where like Mutz is playing, like, you know, you know, Chris hates Dave, Dave just wants to troll Chris, you know, all this other stuff. So he had a weird dichotomy that he had to go through, uh, in a specific area. And I remember we had met each other for the very first time at ShmooCon and, you know, Chris comes up to me and he's, he looks like he wants to punch me and beat me up. And, and he's looking at me and he's really apprehensive and Mutz is like, listen, man, you know, you guys just need to get along. You're both my friends, you know, let's, let's figure this out. And, uh, Chris is like, listen, man, you know, like what happens if my kids would have been there and they would have saw that site, you know, it could have been really bad. I'm like, dude, I, and listen, I, I wouldn't do this again, you know, my age now, but this is, you know, I'm, you know, in my early twenties at this point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, and Chris, Chris is like, what if my kids have been there? I'm like, dude. I totally understand, man. I I'm really sorry that this happened. I, I have kids myself, and I didn't have kids at the time. Uh, and I'm like, dude, check out here's here's my kids, and it was another shock site on my phone. And um, <laughs> Chris starts chasing me through Schmookon, wanting to fight me. And and so so another like day of mutts, like getting getting Chris to uh, to to like unwind and not be upset with me. And mm-hmm. I decided I'd take Chris out to dinner uh, for a uh, for a um, you know like a, a, a peace treaty. And I actually was going to take him out to dinner. But I was driving a GMC Acadia at the time, and I had, I had um, taken apart my my car. And the CAN bus instructions in the car allowed you to uh, send um, higher than than uh, pre-rated um, settings to the heated seats. So I had like a little <laughs> um, I had a little um, uh, thing that I could just send a signal to, and it would make basically make the heated seats like a, a, a literally like your cooking cooking eggs on it. Uh, <laughs> it was super hot, and so I, I I started kicking up Chris's heat. Like gradually as we're going through, and I started doing circles around the place that we're trying to do, like pretend I was doing uh, playing for parking. And Chris at this point is just sweating profusely, like from head to toe. And he has no idea that it's his heated seat. He thinks he's actually getting sick. And um, he he lifts his butt up a little bit, and he realizes that that his the, the seat is literally you know hot to touch. Like you can't even touch the seat because it's burning. And he starts yelling, "My ass is on fire in the car!" And he jumps out of the car and starts running out. So you know, there's there's many stories I have of going after Chris, but um, um, those those you know, those experiences kind of shape you for, for the tools that you write. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, magic unicorn, uh, I came out of, of a necessity where I was, I was working with Chris Gates, um, on something and, uh, and we ended up coming out with something uh, neat with that, with, with unicorn. Uh, and you know, the pen testers framework was, was because I wanted more modular tools that were up to date and, and you know, all of them kind of shape your experiences through life and kind of where you're at. You know, I remember, 
you know, some of the versions of, of um, you know, the social engineer toolkit, you know, the, the code name was Turbulence because I was on a plane coding for 14 hours straight. You know, all that <laughs> makes an impact on your life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just then uh, you're talking obviously about uh, kind of social engineering toolkit there and you mentioned at the very beginning uh, Mr. Robot. Um, so I, if you don't mind that, I'd love just to ask you about. Um, so how does it feel being name dropped and essentially probably one of the biggest kind of TV shows or just in general kind of pop culture things, especially at the moment uh, for general kind of hacking. So I think, am I right in saying you got used as an alias for, I think it was a darling. Is that correct? Uh, for, for Elliot, for Elliot. It was Elliot. Yeah. It's yep. good uh, for Remy Malik. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So what, what, what's been really cool with, with the Mr. Robot TV shows before it even aired, um, you know, we had a, a, a message come to us, uh, you know, like a, a formal handwritten letter asking for permission to be able to use uh, some of the tools that I'd written on the TV show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, early on, you know, gave them, you know, full permission to do whatever they need to, um, you know, use, use the social engineer toolkit tool, tool in any capacity you want. Didn't know anything about the show, though. Didn't know it was going to be Christian Slater or I mean, Malik or anything like that. Didn't yeah. even know it was going to be called Mr. Robot. And, um, and so we sent, uh, you know, them back a whole bunch of swag, you know, T-shirts and, you know, my book and, you know, some other things there. And if they ever need anything to, to let us know. And I started getting introduced um, to the uh, the technical crew, uh, Coradana, and, and a few of the other folks there, and um, started hitting it off with those guys. And um, I actually helped out with some of the skits in season one. Um, some of them actually didn't even air, which is kind of cool. I don't know if you remember how familiar you are with the show, but in season one, uh, there is a there's a part there. It was right around the same time as the the Ashley Madison data breach, and um, uh, um, Elliot was seeing a, a shrink that you know he was kind of kind of liked a little bit, but he was kind of explaining all the things that he was going through to, to a shrink. And a shrink at the time was dating, um, this really just kind of, you know, not, not good of a dude. Mm-hmm. And so I had a skit actually made and it was the week that they were actually shooting um, that episode. And I had built a, a scenario where Elliot was the one that actually hacked into Ashley Madison and hacked into the database and dumped everything and then exposed it so that, um, his shrink would notice that, that, that guy that she was dating was a total, you know, total, you know, not good, not good person and expose him for everything. And, and that was going to be kind of a running uh-huh. skit. And they ended up never, not using that, that specific code that he's, I mean, I had written a, a script around hacking into the, you know, the database and the web application. And I did a lot of triaging around how the Ashley Madison database breach actually happened and try to keep it as realistic as possible uh, for remote code execution via PHP. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was going to be a really cool skit, but they couldn't incorporate it in that, 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 that same week that they added it, but I helped out a lot with the other, other um, skits as well. But it was really cool because core, um, the year before, was, uh, I think it was in season five where they mentioned my name, but season four, he's like, hey, are you cool if we do something really neat for you? I'm not going to tell you what it is, but for season five, I'm like, sure, man, that sounds cool. <laughs> he's like, make sure you watch this episode. And I'm like, okay. And so I'm sitting there, you know, with, uh, with my wife and, and I, and I, you know, uh-huh. it's not, not appropriate for the kids. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, uh, uh, Elliot is, is inside of Evil Corp and he's, he's basically being fired and the security guards are trying to fi- find him to escort him out of the building. And he's on a computer. He's trying to stop the Dark Army from from completely toppling Evil Corp. And he he walks off off of his chair and he walks into a room because there's security guards in the other end. And he walks into a conference room where he um, you know there's a, there's a bunch of salespeople just randomly having a meeting. And he just sits down, and pretends that you know everything's fine. And uh, you know the, the the sales guy says you know well hey I'm I'm so and so you know who are you? And he's like oh I'm I'm Dave Kennedy. I work with Craig on the Q4 push. I, <laughs> I had longer hair then. And uh, it was such an uh-huh. amazing thing. Yeah. I mean, I like I literally my whole body froze, and I'm like, he just said my name on a nationally syndicated TV show for sure. You know, as a hacker, and 
you know, Core did an interview afterwards and uh, was, was uh, you know, said, hey, it was kind of our, our, our tribute to Dave. He's an amazing, brilliant hacker. He's helped us out with the show. Um, and, uh, you know, he's just a, a brilliant mind, and we just wanted to give him a shout-out. And I thought that was, like, like such a cool thing to, to go through that I never would have thought that would, that, that, that would be possible in any way, shape, or form being, uh, being a computer hacker. Oh, that's incredible. I mean, uh, just not long before we kind of weird, uh, I watched a clip of Hackers, and uh, it's amazing the kind of pendulum swing from you know, the, how hacking is kind of portrayed in, in that film, which is obviously not, I suppose, supposed to be, like, real in, in many ways, but the, the pendulum swing all the way over to kind of Mr. Robot, where they're actually getting people like yourself, experienced people, to kind of help advise on it, uh, kind of really says a lot about, I guess, how much, where the cultures kind of went, the popular culture and hacking, like, not necessarily yep. whether it's better, but certainly, uh, yeah, I, I've always... I, when I first watched the show, uh, I wasn't sure if it was accurate, but it looked cool. And now, kind of having a year later, I kind of went back and watched a few episodes, and I'm like, a lot of work went in there. So, like, well done, like, it's, it's really good to watch. Well, there's so many, so many different contributor contributors to the show, um, and they they pulled in so many amazing people in the security industry to help out with that show to make it mm -hmm. believable, to make it accurate, to keep it. I mean, you know, one thing that was really important from from Sam's perspective, Sam Ashmill's perspective, and, and Core was to, to keep it technically accurate with the skits that they did. They they really loved the hacker culture, and they they loved the 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 mystique around it. They liked the the code mm -hmm. flying around. Um, you know, they, they they really liked portraying that aspect, and they loved that that the security industry just geeked out over it because you know it added a level of credibility to the show that you know really hadn't happened before. You know, you look at you know, uh, what was it, NCIS, where, where they, you know, in order to hack the firewall faster, they're both typing on the same keyboard with two hands each, you know. Go, um, go, go. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're through a perimeter firewall, you know, got to hack faster, got to hack faster, you know. You went through something that 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 was was so bad to to something that that I think was really one of the first shows that really portrayed hacking um, as a as a, a freedom of expression. Yeah. Um, also, that could be used for nefarious purposes and the threats that, and the risks that are, that are with there. And also that hackers are good guys too, uh, good guys and girls, you know. And and that that was the, that was really the the cool portrayal is it really hit all of our different cultures that we have in, in yeah. security. And granted, you know, the show got dark at times and it got crazy at times. And you know, it's <laughs> definitely a TV show, right? But but they really stayed true to a lot of that that culture that I think is really imp uh, important about our industry. Yeah, yeah that's definitely. I mean, dive, diving back, kind of wow, like kind of historical through hackings on the kind of table when did you kind of first start tinkering with computers like what what sparked the interest in actual hacking yeah that's a great question um you know for for me uh i actually did did really bad in, in school um you know I, I came from a a very low income family um you know my, my parents bounced around from job to job to job uh and i and as part of that i would move and i'd move and i move and you know when you're moving every year to a, di a completely different school a completely different location you know ever since i was a kid uh you know ever since i was in, in elementary school you know it's, it's just i'd move and move and move just based on on my parents needing different jobs and and, don't, and please don't get me wrong I mean, they were amazing parents you know they did what they did to to, to provide for for the family and, and that's mm. that, that's amazing they were i had a great upbringing um as a kid but when you when you shift to a, a new school each and every year, you know you you become more and more distant, and it becomes much more difficult to to integrate into that 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 ecosystem to have friends. And so, you know, for me, I actually veered away from school and focused more on on online and technology and and video gaming and programming and building things. I remember I was taking apart my Teddy Ruxpin to figure out how it worked. You know, the 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 motors and and how it actually communicated with the tape and how they synced that together and. <laughs> You know, so so for me, technology became a, an avenue of expression that 
you know, I, I, I didn't have in, in a normal, I guess, upbringing in school because I just didn't have friends. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I had a couple of friends, you know, I'd still keep in contact with online, but for the most part, I was kind of an outcast in, in most of the things that I did. And uh, I actually failed out of high school. Um, I, I didn't graduate high school because I was always staying at home working on games or coding. Uh, I was part of what are called multi-user dimensions, MUDs, uh, which were text-based uh, video games at the time. These are, you know, before EverQuest and all that other stuff was out there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was, I, was a, I was a mod and admin and, and owner of, of a few different MUDs where I was doing all the C. I, that's how I learned how to program in C uh, was coding MUDs. <laughs> and, you know, we, that, that's where I started getting a lot of my technology um, foundation. So I ended up um, going to summer school to pass, graduated high school. And then from there, I directly went into the United States Marine Corps um, in the intelligence agency. And so I, you know, I had a top secret clearance. Um, I was working on behalf of the government. Uh, and, uh, you know, they really honed in a lot of my technical skills and got me really into and, and, and really found my niche um, in, in offensive capabilities and, and, you know, really early stages of, of cyber warfare. And uh, that's really where, you know, I really started to enjoy security and started being more integrated in security. I remember I, um, I went to, to DEF CON 9, I think. It was my first DEF CON. DEF CON 9, right? And I was still in the military. They sent me there. And it was funny because they had to spot the Fed. And I guess technically I was a Fed at that point because it was working for the NSA. <laughs> so I uh, never, never picked me up, you know, but even though oh, I had the nice. haircut and, you know, I looked literally like a Fed, I guess, a young Fed at that time. But, uh, yeah, you know, it, it was it was for me, the, the, the thing that clicked for me and, uh, you know, was was when I saw um, Bruce Potter and the and the Shmoo group on stage at, at DEF CON. And, you know, these these are some of my early heroes, you know, Call to Dead Cows and, and the Shmoo group and, you know, uh, you know, Fidor and, and just those guys that, that, you know, were, you know, that that really started a lot of what we see today or a lot of the foundational building blocks of what we see today. And I remember seeing uh, the Shmoo group on stage and they were demoing, I think it was a UPS box that, you know, had two nicks on it where you can, you know, physically break into a location and it would, you know, you plug in one end to the other and then and it would route all your traffic through and it was kind of like a, mm-hmm. a back door into their network. And at that time, that was just a, a, an awesome thing. You know, it's yeah. just a small box that they did. And I was like, man, I want to be like those guys. And hopefully someday, you know, I, I can, I can, I can be like them and, and, you know, be as smart as those guys are. And, and so I really started po- focusing a lot of my effort um, and research and understanding, really building out my capabilities, my knowledge. Um, it really gave me the the, the, the motivation to to try to, to bring bring myself to the next level of, of you know being part of part of this industry what do you think the differences are between when someone started you know in security uh, just uh, in general uh, at your age uh, or back when you kind of started um what what do you think the main differences between someone starting then and starting now would you say like maybe uh, is it more challenging just different challenges? I think I think you know when when you get into a new industry, it's 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 different challenges. Um, you know, back back then, uh, you, you know, you had a community there, but it was such a small community, right? Yeah. You know, DefCon at Alexis Park, you know, was was tiny in comparison to the you know twenty thousand, thirty thousand people that we see now. Yeah. But but with that though, you know, there was a lack of resources and, and knowledge and understanding. So when when you were doing something, you know, there might be a frack article. I remember there's a frack article that Egypt wrote. You know, a number of years ago, on, on I think it was like data execution prevention and, and getting around that, and there was no exploit that incorporated data execution prevention. It was all like theoretical. So you know, you had to sit there and you had to kind of build out your own exploit, figure it out, learn it on your own. I, mean, I remember spending when I first when I first wrote my first ROP gadget, which by the way wasn't called ROP at that point. Um, you know, it, it hadn't been. You know, it wasn't really a, a formalized way of circumventing data ex- execution prevention. But I was building a ROP gadget before it was actually a ROP gadget. Um, you know, I spent I spent over a month in my basement. Um, figuring out how 
data execution prevention works, the ins and outs of it by sitting inside of a debugger and basically building out, you know, my my exploit code to circumvent data execution prevention. And so that it's it's a difference in in the amount of information that is available then to what is now. What what's available now is a full-fledged industry. You know, we're supportive. We have training classes and courses. We have, you know, free resources that you can go and pull out. We have career paths. There's college degree programs. So there's there's a lot of opportunity to learn in this industry. I think that the issue that we run into um, in, in the security industry is that everybody's expecting, you know, five plus years of experience and, uh, and all this other stuff when, you know, because because we're already kind of in a shortage when it comes to people that we don't have the, the, the skills development from the zero to five year piece for a lot of people. And I think some people get mm. lost in that mix there. Um, and, and so I, I just think it's different challenges. It's not necessarily um, harder or better or worse. Um, it's yep. just different challenges that I think we face today than we did you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, a, a part of this industry as, as it's just grown and expanded. Yeah, my boss, uh, Carrie Hendricks, um, who's also obviously one of my mentors um, for kind of learning the ropes, uh, very much has told me loads of good stories about back in the day, just that having, you know, just printouts of manuals for all your oh, yeah. devices. And, and that's how you would learn. Whereas, um, as I say, within the first year of my career, uh, and for me, it's just an instant Google and near enough, the first hit is probably going to get you in many occasions uh, what you need or give you an option. And then maybe the second link will be something different. And then you've got get books. <laughs> you know, you've got Andy here wrote a book as well. I think uh, you wrote a book about Metasploit as well. Was that another? Yeah, yeah another arrow in the quiver uh, for yourself. Yeah, the, uh, that's actually a funny story too. How that kind of transpired, but uh, the 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 research that you had to do then was was very different than the research you do now. And don't don't get me wrong, uh, what the researchers are doing today is, is 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 probably substantially harder than what we had to do 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the re- and, uh, reason why you know I started switching more towards source, social engineering as as an avenue is just it was so much more easier than spending a month on an exploit. You know, <laughs> to, to fuzz to fuzz an exploit. You know, to to find a zero day to find a crash that that allowed for remote code execution in the first place. Um, you know, and, and then from there, right, you know, your protective mechanisms, as you started getting into data execution prevention, ASLR, you know, uh, all these different protection mechanisms started getting built into Windows. You know, the time frame it took to build an exploit, you know, just in my personal time was, you know, instead of it being a couple of weeks, it was a month or two months or three months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at social engineering, and you have this whole different easy way of getting into things. And so, you know, it, it, the research today is actually, you know, pretty substantially hard. You know, you look at what like people like Durkion are doing with with Azure and, and basically reverse engineering Azure and what they're doing from a from an anonymous perspective. Uh, you know, it, it's it's incredible. You know, the the amount of of people that are are still developing you know open source platforms and ways for us to still continue to do research. But you know, we didn't necessarily have that then. And so you know, we had to write we had to write the foundation for for what you see today. You know, I was part of the group that wrote the penetration testing execution standard, which defined how you did penetration testing and, and really built out. A, a, a solid baseline of people of what they expected it because back then vulnerability assessments and penetration tests were used very much interchangeably. You'd run a, a Nesta scan and, and that would be your penetration test. Um, and, and that's, you know, very much changed today. And uh, we wrote the book, uh, you know, I wrote it with uh, much Jim O'Gorman, uh, Dookie. Uh, we wrote uh, Metasploit, the penetration testers guide together um, as kind of a, a first foray into that. And um, right before um, we wrote the book, uh, we wrote um, the very first ever in-depth tutorial of Metasploit. It was called Metasploit Unleashed, and it was a free resource on on offensive security. And um, you know that was the first uh, introductory for it. And that's actually what got us the book deal with No Starch. Uh, Bill from No Starch reached out to us and it's like, "Hey, do you want to um, 
do you want to uh, write this book? And we're like, uh, cool, we'll, we'll figure it out. And let me tell you, writing a book is the biggest pain in the butt that we've ever had to do in our entire lives. But uh, it was well worth it. And, uh, you know, it turned out to be a really great book. Yeah, I can I can echo that. Right, writing a book is a pain in the ass, but um, it's it does pay off. Like, cause people people think thank you time and time again, and for well, for most people, it's 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 a timeless resource that'll last through and through. But um, yeah, um, so we we talked about how you got into industry the industry, um, but like back when you got into kind of cyber warfare, what what was cyber warfare when you started? And obviously, what we look at it now is like, oh. Uh, crazy hacks and things but was it as crazy as it's made out to be obviously you can't talk about all of it because of all the top secretness but i have, I have a bunch of uh, folks in black suits staring at me through the window right now so uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um you know what's what's interesting with with how we look at cyber warfare today versus you know back in the day you know uh, 15 20 years ago you know cyber warfare was was Really looked upon as more of an intelligence gathering piece. Um, it was it was very minorly sprinkled into the military capabilities. It really wasn't looked at as as a direct um, extension of military force, which it, it's looked at very differently with Cyber Command today in the United States. Um, whereas it's looked at a direct way of of being able to compete on a, a landscape where you're going uh, against an adversary that that has technical capabilities or cyber capabilities. Um, most of the offensive capabilities that we saw back then was very much around uh, signals collection, uh, signals breaking, um, uh, forensics and analysis, and um, exploitation. And and so early on, you know what's what's interesting, um, you know what I can talk about. If you if you look at kind of the the how uh, when the NSA got popped by the whole shadow brokers thing, um, that was very much the the military. Or, sorry, the the NSA's mentality going back to when I was in versus you know. Very, very recently, you know, just a couple of years ago, which is, you know, spend millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars with all of these third party independent, you know, massive conglomerate military contractors to develop, you know, these these you know weapons that that are so secret that if they were to ever get released would cause substantial harm, you know, to the rest of the world. But they're literally skeleton keys for every single box on the Internet. Right. Mm. And that was that was kind of their their. That, that's what the equation group or the NSA was was really known for was being able to to develop or source those capabilities and have the most technical weapons out there than any other country. But the but the problem with that that type of, of capability was it was very much a legacy way of thinking because you know if you look at what Russia and China has done, it, they may not have the the greatest zero days or exploits and believe me they do but but maybe not on par with what we had at the NSA. But what they did is they changed their tactics to be much more effective with social engineering campaigns and and focused attacks where they used burnable infrastructure that that if it got compromised, um, you know, they could easily spin it back up again. Whereas when when shadow brokers hit and all that information got leaked, I mean, that was a large, vast majority of of their capabilities. And so it really set the program back substantially uh, in how we conduct uh, cyber warfare capabilities um, in, in the military. Uh, or in, in, in the government uh, versus what China and Russia and other countries, even Iran, North Korea, eh, maybe not North Korea to much extent, but <laughs> what, what they all had as far as capabilities, you know, we're, we're actually uh, uh, superseding what we were doing from from even having the most crazy exploits that we spent, you know, millions and millions of dollars on. So it's it's an interesting way, you know, I'm, and I know that the, you know, from what we see in the, in the news and, and what's been released publicly, you know, I think the NSA has, has really reshifted and retooled and, and, and taken more of that, that mindset and approach while still developing, 
you know, internal capabilities, but you know, it, it took them a long time to move that way. And that's, that's very much how it's been for probably the past, past 20 years. How much has the, so uh, I've been learning about risk and obviously kind of what that means because it comes up in a lot of conversations um, kind of throughout security. How, how much has risk changed um, since, you know, you, when you started till now? Like, because obviously over the last 20 years, a lot more of our stuff's interconnected, not least Internet of Things, but, you know, infrastructure. So the risk seems to have, you know, kind of been shooting up you know, a, a lot over the last 20 years. So is that has that been influential in the kind of changes in the industry since you've you, in your time? Yeah, I'm glad you you bring that point up because risk is looked at very differently now than it was 20 years ago, um, and and we continuously look at you know what is our our highest likelihood of of an attack occurring? Who's who's the adversaries that are going to be that, that are going to attack us, and what's the impact that it's going to have on our organization or our personal lives? Mm-hmm. And when you when you look at at risk uh, from a, a perspective of that. Um, your your decisions become much more differently informed of how you protect your systems in the first place, and and risk really wasn't looked upon 20 years ago the same way it is today because you know 20 years ago you know you had Marcus Random coming out and saying well hey you know I, I'm going to create the first firewall and you know here you should start doing network segmentation and, and and not allowing you know your your workstation to communicate to one another and, and what do we have today well we still have a lot of workstations still communicating with one another mm-hmm. and we still have you know uh, you know wide open networks and things like that granted we still have firewalls in place but you know what what but what what companies are, are doing is is taking a look at at their entire organization, trying to figure out the best way that they can address risk in their organization. It's very similar to how they address risk in other areas of their business, whether it's supply chain issues or you know financial issues, mm-hmm. uh, financial risks. You know, risk is is at the same table as every part of risk in the organization. And cyber is a big component of it, and oftentimes uh, much larger. What I really mm-hmm. like about what has shifted in the industry over the past ten years. That is very different ten years ago to now. That I think is, is is in the right right direction, is that you know when when I would do penetration tests 10, 15 years ago, uh, we'd go into a company, we would you know completely destroy them. We'd walk out and we'd hand them a report, and then they would go fix each of the vulnerabilities or exploits that we used during that penetration test. So they'd be like, okay, well, you know, I need to patch MS 8067 I need to patch null sessions here. I need to do this here, and then the next year we'd come in and we'd just destroy them again. And the next year we just destroy them again because there'd be vulnerabilities everywhere else. Yeah. And you know what? What companies realize, and what the, the industry realizes, is that it is not possible to fix every single vulnerability in your organization. It's just not going to happen. You want to do your best to to try to, you know, fix it. Um, but but at the same time, we recognize that there are going to be exposures that that are out of our control that we didn't identify across our environment or a system that we didn't know what was there. Yeah. And the, the focus shifted from fixing fixing all the things to understanding how attack patterns work once an actual attack occurs and how do we minimize the damage that a breach has to our organization. So can we stop an attack day one or or one hour into a breach occurring after they've gotten around all of our preventative uh, controls and can we minimize the damage to the company And, and, and understanding those attack patterns of you know, initial access, privilege escalation, lateral movement, post-exploitation scenarios, getting access to servers, you know, from, from one system to one system, one system through those exfiltration of data, looking at all those phases and building up better detections or preventive mechanisms throughout all those phases has made it a lot more different from an attacker's perspective than, than any time before. I, I can mm-hmm. tell you, um, you know, at TrustedSec, we have, you know, we, uh, about four years ago, it was four years ago, 
we recognized that that it was getting harder to break into companies. It wasn't as easy as before. And um, one of the people I, I really attribute to to the success over here is one of the the folks in my company, uh, Justin Elzey, who's been been part of the company for for a number of years, uh, five years. And um, Justin said to me, he's like, hey, it's it's getting a lot harder out there. We you know we should really invest. And I know it's a, a cost. It's going to cost us money. It's not going to be a, a profit center for us from a from a consulting perspective. But you know, we need to invest in in research people. Mm-hmm. Um, because, um, you know, we need to have the ca- same types of capabilities as adversaries do, you know, we see the time shifting and it's not every company, but so we invested in a research division and, you know, that has paid off tenfold for us because, you know, we are well ahead of, of any other company that I know about there, you know, minus exception of a couple, um, you know, when it comes to our capabilities, our ability to match their blue team or to go above what the blue team's doing, you know, um, from a, from a research availability, command and control, exploitation, you know, you name it, um, evasion, mm-hmm. but. You, know, you have EDR products in place. You have people actually focusing on monitoring detection. You have threat hunting teams. You have analysts going through data. You know all of these things have have made a big impact in in how we look and perceive security. And, and the shift has changed more to minimize the damage, not necessarily prevent 100% of the things that we know we can't protect against. So, do you think from that perspective, just just talking about the the um, above above blue team, do you think there's more of a shift towards the purple teaming mentality rather than purely red team focus? Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great question. Um, you know, when you when you look at um, where where the evolution has kind of happened, you know, you 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 have penetration tests, and, and and penetration tests are are for normal organizations. And when I say normal organizations, it, you know, organizations that are still working on their core programs like vulnerability management, that are working on network segmentation, are working on their perimeter, that are working on you know patch management and and mon- in their monitoring detection programs. You know, it, it's for an average security program. Yeah. Uh, where you start to elevate, though, is when you already have those components established, where you have good configuration management, you have, you know, decent vulnerability management, you have a monitoring detection program. And I would say, you know, the components to jump from a penetration test to a red team, number one is you have to have a, a, a solid or at least start the, 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 the foundational visibility for a monitoring detection program. And, and from there, you know, what red teams are good for is a validation um, that your controls are effective, that you have the appropriate detection capabilities, again, throughout all those different phases, and where you have, might, might have gaps or weaknesses. But really the missing link, though, is that you know when you go from a penetration test to a red team, there's still a very substantial gap there for, for most organizations and companies as they make that leap into more maturity, uh, mature levels. And so really um, the, the purple team aspects um, really has helped the industry where you, when you talk about collaboration of of having the blue side looking in at seeing what the red team is doing and helping build detection criteria, building you know, new ways of identifying things, building where you have gaps or, or lack of visibility, um, that substantially increases um, your your monitoring detection programs and your preventive controls you know, very rapidly because you're sitting there working hand in hand together uh, to go and do it. I'm, I'm a huge advocate of, of purple team exercises, but the problem I see is that I, I really think that that the industry gets very much caught up on buzzwords, uh, <laughs> and and they, you know, whenever we get a customer like, hey, I have to have a red team now. Well, what do you, why do you want a red team? Well, because you know we've already done a penetration test before, and we got completely destroyed and owned, but we, but they tell us now that we need a red team. Well, that doesn't make any sense, you know. So you know, yeah. when, when you look at 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 building your program and and building your maturity to be able to withstand attacks, purple teams are the way to go. When you're already at a mature state and you're looking for the things that can take you to the next level. That's really where red teams come into play. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, that's kind of quite a bit beyond um, the kind of scope of where I'm currently at in my career. But obviously, being pals with Andy here, doing the podcast, and having so many great guests on that are involved 
and at this stage both blue and red teaming and obviously me getting to learn from that and knowing the way that you know at a very high level in companies like how those tests kind of work and the benefits of them like i can see why purple teaming does have that additional benefit you're getting to build upon uh, what you've already kind of got in place like and kind of fill the gaps almost um so i was just gonna uh, one thing i'd be really interested to kind of hear about um just gotta remember here seeing a tweet a while back, uh, Dave, I was I saw that uh, you've had a gaming and leadership center, the Kennedy Center for Gaming and Leadership, uh, kind of named after you. That must be really humbling, like, uh, and I, I see that you donated as well. Um, are you a big gamer yourself? I'm a huge gamer. Yeah, nice. yeah. Um, I, I love so for me, you know, I have I have three kids, mm-hmm. a busy life with two companies, and a bunch of other stuff going on. Uh, so for me, my my out or my relaxing time is either coding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, working my brain, getting it going, um, or or playing video games to just kind of unwind with with friends. And so, uh, right now, I'm playing uh, Destiny and uh, uh, Hunt Showdown, which is more of a PvP PVE type of game. And I play that mm-hmm. with a couple of my friends, and we just uh, you know mindless shooting and going after teams and you know real sweaty battles and things like that. <laughs> and I love I love the the gaming experience. I've never I've always been gaming my entire life, and that's one thing that I've, I've never put down. Yeah, it's amazing to see the way that that's kind of kicked off and you've got an entire generation of young people like aspiring to be professional gamers and whilst there might be a lot of people that of older generations that might frown down upon that, like, you know, it's, it's it's a passion like, and it's amazing that there's kind of places like obviously this um, Kennedy uh, Centre for Gaming and Leadership that will kind of facilitate that and help people. So, yeah, it's really interesting kind of seeing you tweet about that. It's, it's quite very, very interesting. Yeah, what was what was cool about the the, the Kennedy Center of, of leadership and gaming was uh, it, it's it's from the school that I graduated from, uh, Bedford exactly. High School. Yeah, it's and huge. Uh, you know when when I was there, um, you know it was it was very much a, a low income school. I think the the net median for for household income was was thirty thousand dollars, or still t- t- today it's thirty thousand dollars, which is below the national average of I think fifty four thousand dollars. So you know very very poverty stricken suburb of of Cleveland. And, you know, when, when I was going through there, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for, for college scholarships. There wasn't a lot of opportunity for especially technology-related degrees. And a couple of years ago, um, I, I went to the school again and uh, had saw some of my old teachers like, man, really? You made it? Like, you're the one that was supposed to be like the, <laughs> the horrible one, you know, like you was in detention and all this other stuff. But, yeah. um, you know, but, um, you know, I, I spoke to the kids there um, about my career path and, and how... You know, I found a home in, in information security and, and how I was able to go from from Bedford and having no money for a college degree to kind of the military and the different steps. And, you know, it really resonated with the kids. And I was talking to uh, and ended up uh, from there joining the their, their technology board um, to help uh, influx technology into, mm-hmm. into the school district itself. And, um, you know, uh, one of the folks came up to me from from uh, from Bedford and he was like, hey, he's like, I'm how would you tackle this? You know, I'm thinking about, you know, possibly starting a, a gaming league. You know, we have some old scrappy computers and things like that. We're looking at scrounging up for the, for the gaming center to, to maybe, you know, incorporate gaming as a way to, to get these kids interested in, in technology and to give them mm-hmm. an opportunity that didn't have before. And, uh, interesting enough, I, you know, I, we have a great relationship with the Cleveland Cavaliers and, um, they have a esports gaming facility, state of the art. And so, um, what I ended up doing is I, I you know, I decided, well, what if I just built the whole and paid for the whole gaming center for the entire students with brand new main gear, you know, 
awesome, you know, I think there are 2080 TIs, you know, uh, things like that, and build out the whole gaming center, you yeah. know, for the school. And I also partner with the Cavs, and we get the Cavs involved, you know, <laughs> to, to help them out, teach the kids on, on gaming. And so it all just worked out so well. And, yeah. you know, what was really cool is I, when they, uh, you know, the, I had not seen it, and we did a ribbon cutting ceremony to open up the whole center, and it was just beautiful inside, you know, trusted sec everywhere. And, yeah. You know, like, you know, the, the kids were there playing video games and their parents were all there. And one of the parents came under me teary eye and he's like, you know, we can't afford, um, you know, a computer at our house. You know, and, and my son is is so interested in everything that there is about computers. This is giving him an option. And, you know, um, you know, some of the parents are like, well, how is gaming going to do it? But what's interesting is uh, one of these kids stories that I, that I really enjoyed was you, you have to have a certain GPA to, to join the, the, the gaming uh, center. So you can't, you know, be failing out of school and, you know, be video gaming all day long. Yep. So, so one of the kids was, was almost failing out of school and um, he, he basically bumped himself up to straight A's to be on this team and to be there with his friends to be able to do gaming. And, and he is one of the kids that's probably going to get one of those scholarship opportunities. Uh, so, so it, this opened up um, a, a league that are um, a whole bunch of scholarship opportunities. We started working with different colleges and they basically um, started uh, um, being able to donate scholarship opportunities directly to all the kids there. And I think there's a total of like 15 per year. Oh, wow. Um, scholarship opportunities for these kids where they never would have had before in the first place from all these different schools. So, you know, it really made a big difference in, in people and, and uh, the kids. And it's just, uh, you know, one of those, those moments in your life because my, 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 my wife was there all my kids were there. My, yep. my mom, my dad was there. My stepmom was there. And, you know, the, the mayor's there and all this other stuff. And, it, you know, coming from a, a, that type of upbringing to be able to provide back to, to you know, a city that, that could use it was, was just one of those life moments that, you know, you're like, yeah, I did good this time. And, and it's something that, you know, you're helping other people. Yeah, something that'll make final cut. And I've always liked the phrase um, just like – paying it forward like any kind of kindness shown to you and doing that sort of thing like and uh yeah man that's that's absolutely incredible um, uh, i got into arguably my first foray into kind of hacking in general was when i was playing star wars galactic battlegrounds on microsoft nice. gaming zone back in the day just an age of oh, empires yeah. clone uh, I played that one too yeah, uh, I, I sat on that between the ages of like like thirteen to like seventeen. I was on that with a community of about two hundred and fifty people. It very much would have been my equivalent of IRC, I guess, probably for you, like um, and other games, obviously you played as well. But um, yeah, my first experience was just being a total dick and basically having it so we could log two hundred and fifty people into every lobby uh, just by fucking about with the reg keys. <laughs> uh, uh, and at the time, I never thought of it as hacking. I was just being a wee dick uh, but it was uh, yeah that, that kind of got me into it and that was kind of through gaming like uh, and as well I did kind of audio in the games industry as well for a little bit so there's massive links there from even if they don't do gaming like on that PC they can do anything like and with oh, kind of yeah. people at their, uh, the internet at their hands so yeah that's amazing yeah. I, I think how long we got left? I think we've got about 15 minutes because we're conscious of your time and you're also a busy man, Dave. Um, so um, unless uh, you've got any specific things you want to talk to Dave about, we can move on to some questions that we got from Twitter. Uh, what do you think, Andy? Yeah, I think I think probably there, there's a, a lot of questions from Twitter. Yeah. It's what happens when you ask. Does anybody have any questions? Everyone goes, oh, yeah, questions. Yeah, we love questions. So, uh, yeah, I suppose starting off, we've got um, what what's the security like inside of the TARDIS in your basement? <laughs> so uh the, the story behind the tardis is if you're not familiar with doctor who it's the the time and relative space and dimension uh which is one of my favorite tv shows uh growing up as a kid my dad used to watch uh tom baker and 
you know, all the different uh, uh, doctors that would come through. And I used to, it was one of those things where I, I really fell in love with the TV show and I have, have, you know, instilled that in my kids, my kids love watching Dr. Who. Uh, we watch it religiously when it's on, it's obviously been on a kind of a hiatus uh, lately, but uh, uh, it's coming back, uh, which is great. And uh, with, with Dr. Who, um, when I was building my house, um, I, I said to my wife, there's, there's, there's three things that I really want in this house. And you can pick everything else that you want. I don't care what it is. You can you can make it all pink. I don't care. But I want three <laughs> things out of this house. And so one of them was a urinal. Uh, so I have a urinal in my house, which I thought was really awesome. The the second thing was I wanted a theater room uh, in my house, like a little tiny you know movie theater room for for movies and stuff like that. And I wanted the entrance to the movie theater room to be a TARDIS. Nice. And so um, what the the TARDIS is, it's a full-size TARDIS on the outside, but when you open it up, it moves into a movie theater room uh, that, that you know you can watch movies and everything. So it is absolutely bigger on the inside. And a funny story about the uh, the TARDIS is um, I, I've been looking for a full-size TARDIS on eBay for like months and months and months, and I finally found one. And it was from a, a school in Kentucky, which is about a eight-hour drive uh, from here. And they were selling it because they had uh, one of the, the carpenter dads had built a life-size uh, TARDIS um, for one of the school plays where they had Doctor Who as a the theme. And it was beautiful. I mean, it was all wood. It was made to spec. The guy, you know, obviously put a lot of love into to making <laughs> this TARDIS. Yeah. And so I remember driving a U-Haul uh, eight hours to Kentucky to get this, this TARDIS. And it's, it was by myself, which I didn't really think <laughs> about it, but the TARDIS, is, it weighs like 500 pounds. You know, and, and so I, I somehow get it into the, the truck and it still doesn't dawn on me that I'm just by myself still. So I drive it home, and, and our house hadn't been built yet at this point. We're just just getting built, and so we had a storage bin. And I, I get to the storage bin at like two o'clock in the morning, and I have this 500 pound TARDIS that I have to somehow get from the <laughs> from the U-Haul to my to my storage bin. And somehow I, with like pulleys and cloth and stuff like that, I was able to make it work, and I eventually got it in there. But uh, built a whole TARDIS in my house, and. Uh, you know, a huge Doctor Who fan. I got behind me. I got you can't see it because no video, but I got a, a signed uh, Sonic screwdriver from Matt Smith. Uh, oh, nice! Got, got nice. Uh, signed Doctor Who paraphernalia everywhere across my my house. I'm a, a huge huge fan of it. Prized possessions. Oh, that was awesome. awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Um, we got another one here. Let's have a look. Uh, what's it like to chainsaw through a door? <laughs> so the story so, there. <laughs> so the the story here is uh, is a funny one. Sorry for the dogs barking in the background, but that's uh, fair, right? Um, so the, the the story here is is uh, uh, my my daughter has her own uh, bathroom, and um, in her in her bathroom, uh, it, it's it's the door kind of opens into the um, into the the actual bathroom area, so the door uh-huh. goes inward. And what happened was that the drawer had basically backed out um, into the um, so when she had left the door, basically the door, she had, she had shut the door and the, 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 the drawer had f- fallen backwards into the door. So the door could no longer open anymore. <laughs> oh, shit. And I tried under the door tools. I, you know, I tried, I, I tried for like an hour. I tried messing around with different things, uh, trying to, um, uh, get this thing to go in. And the problem was, is like, I had about an inch and I could stick like a, a little, I made like a little metal rod thing and I could push it through. But the problem is that even with it open, just an inch, it was pushing on the door and I couldn't get it done. So I'm like, well, the only other option is to drill through this door. And I, you know, I have Dremels, I have, you know, some some small saws and things like that. But I'm like, you know what? When am I ever going to have the opportunity to take a chainsaw to a door? (laughs) And so so I got this electric chainsaw out uh, and uh, basically sawed through the the entire door, uh, you know, screaming the entire time. I thought that was kind of funny and um, (laughs) and I had a great time with it. So I I, I made a big, big hole in the door. 
you know, did all that. And uh, all of a sudden now we can get into her, her room. Now there's a big hole in the middle of the door, but uh, it has since been fixed. So. <laughs> did you stick your head through and say, here's Johnny? I, you know, I, 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 I should have. I did not. And I, oh, it was such you... a missed opportunity because I did feel like him as I was going through and doing it from The Shining. But uh, yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so that might be something missed, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Just need to find a door and then chainsaw through it. Um, That's right. So, That's awesome. <laughs> so, other, I mean, we've got loads of questions. Can I try and summarize some of them? Um, how how was your first security conference ever? So, how was my first security conference ever? So, my my first security conference um, was actually the inf- it was it was it was more of a, a, a higher level uh, conference. It was the the information. Well, my first ever security conference uh, in the military was DEFCON. So, DEFCON was my first ever experience in that. And you know, DEFCON then was 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 so much different. And, and that's actually why I started DerbyCon. Um, you know, when I when I looked at 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 what DEFCON was, you know, in in two thousand two two thousand three. You know, it was very much focused on on community. It was very much focused on knowledge sharing. Uh, it was very much focused on, you know, yeah, yeah, you had that that rock star mentality and stuff like that, which I, I wasn't you know a fan of. But you you had people that you looked up to to help drive you kind of forward in your career, and and they'd be willing to help you. And and that's really what I tried to replicate with with DerbyCon was you know no rock stars, but but the place where you can go to and and learn from one another and, and have a community feel where, where everybody can work together and, and, and be accepting of anybody who, regardless of where you came from or, or who you are, or where your race, religion, or gender is. Um, so so Def God had a really big monumental impact on me uh, very early on. The, the first presentation, it was funny, the first um, experience I had ever giving a presentation, you know, I've, I've presented at Def Con a number of times, I've presented at conferences all over the world. My very first ever presentation I ever gave was at a, a place here in Cleveland called the Information Security Summit. And it was one of those ones for more like auditors and like things like that, more of a higher level, you know, um, uh, type of conference. And I remember um, I had probably 100 people in for my very first talk uh, for the Information Security Summit. And, and this was not the appropriate place to do it. But basically, I went into the ins and outs of, of cracking web encryption because at the time that was like the hot thing. <laughs> and so, like, you know, I remember having like two access points there and I. You know, I was I was doing packet injection to to increase the initialization vectors. You know, in order to crack the web encryption, I'm showing all this on the screen, and these people in the audience are all in suits. They're like, "What in the hell is this kid talking about? Like, what is going on here?" That was really my first first introduction to to speaking. It was uh, a fun one. I had a good time with it. Just blowing minds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, there's one good question here. Uh, it's from John Carroll. Uh, what was your biggest oh fuck oh fuck oh fuck moment? because <laughs> i'd imagine um, everyone's hot one everybody everybody has those for sure um I, I have two two big ones i think in my life that were more monumental one of them was when i was in iraq um i had a, a i wouldn't say a near-death experience i had a, a you know i was in in a combat situation i suppose where where you know bombs are going off and things like that and you kind of look up and you say well i'm probably not making it through this so you know that that was probably one of my, my biggest ones that kind of changed my perspective on life on, on that life is is uh is every single day is is not a not a guarantee and uh, you should make every single day of your life like it's your last and yeah. so that's you know what I try to do was my, kind of my motto in life with giving the charities and, and helping people out and yeah. you know going out and and, and 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 doing outreach and stuff like that has been been really important to to my life um, for that but um, one of my one of my ones recently I would suppose is when I actually started Trusted Sec um, you know what's interesting 
in this industry, you can go a lot of different ways in starting your company, uh, starting a company. You can go the venture capitalist route where you get a bunch of people that that pay a whole bunch of money into your company and you really don't own that company as much anymore and, and you don't really have as much direction. You have a board of directors and things like that. For me, I hate meetings. I, I hate meetings. Everybody in my company <laughs> knows I hate meetings. Like, why can't we just talk like friends and then figure yeah. everything out and then we'll, we'll get it done later? You know, like, like you know, granted there are times for meetings, but my meetings, like even with my leadership team, last a half hour. You know, because yeah. we're already talking throughout the day in the first place. Why do we need to have a meeting for a meeting for a meeting to to do all this? So I, I hate meetings. So the VC way wasn't wasn't my route. And um, I was at Diebold at the time, and um, I I was the youngest vice president in in Diebold history. Um, I had come out, you know, I'd, I'd I'd come into the ranks and joined as a regional security officer. Got promoted within two years to to chief information security officer, and I ran the whole security program and built their whole program out. And and I had a you know golden ticket where golden parachute we call it, which is if you if you get fired you have like two years of salary and compensation already taken care of. I I literally had one of the best jobs, job stability, job stability. I had I didn't have anything to worry, worry about. I had a phenomenal team, you know. Uh, we had we we're doing stuff that no one else was doing. I mean, we implemented um, uh, uh, Cisco's. Uh, um, uh, it was called ScanSafe at the time. Got acquired by Cisco. Uh, eventually got incorporated into their AnyConnect client. But uh, what what we would do is like proxy chain everybody out. And so, you know, you talk about egress filtering, we had disallowed every single port and protocol, including FTP, except for a few exceptions, and 18443 across the entire enterprise in less than a month. And that's 25,000 endpoints, right? And, you know, we were doing stuff that, that was just, you know, like really, really kind of kind of kicking butt and, and taking names, network architecture, network segmentation, you know, shoring up our external perimeter. And it was a great time. But, you know, I, I came home one day from, from um, Diebel and I'm like, Aaron, you know, I know we just had brand new twins, you know, good timing to start a new company. Um, but, you know, I, I really feel like I can make a bigger impact on a, on a much more global scale if I started my own company. Yeah. And, you know, it was going from a certain way of life to a completely uncertain way of life. Yep. And that was one of my big OF moments in my life because, you know, I had, I had mouse to feed. I had a family to take care of. Uh, and, and my wife was, you know, what's, what's interesting with her is that trusted tech would not be here without her derby con wouldn't be here without her. Um, she, she really was my, you know, the backbone to all of this. You know, I, I didn't know how to start an LLC or do finance. She didn't either, but she learned, yeah. you know, and so she, she's still, she's still in charge of finance at trusted tech. Um, you know, we grew it from a small one person company to having over a hundred people and in starting another company that has over a hundred people, and, and it just kind of spawned from there. So for me, it was really making that jump into, you know, having a perfectly good job to starting my own company in the basement of my own house with kids upstairs destroying each other, um, <laughs> you know, to, to actually having businesses that support people and, and, are, and are doing great things. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's some career that you've had, like, just as I say, prior to the show, me and Andy were just kind of going over uh, just uh, a bio someone had done for you. And it was all the things you mentioned at the beginning. Um, so... Uh, it's been really fascinating to hear all about it. We've had pretty much about an hour, so um, as I say, we're co co conscious of your time. Um, so, just one last thing, and kind of outgoing, I wanted to mention was uh, I can see that you've just uh, done a, a really big donation to uh, uh, one of uh, Danny uh, his project that's kind of going on this weekend, and I think everyone should know about. It's like in a twenty-four hour, um, uh, basically stream. Just, stream yeah effectively um with loads of different guests and it's donating towards uh bucks for belize um and yeah uh thank you for doing that <laughs> i guess from everybody on the planet because that's a real nice thing for you to do dave uh, you've um are you going to be involved at all on saturday 
I am. So I'll be um, I'll be doing two things. Uh, one is I'm I'm doing a debate with uh, with Ray Redacted and uh, mm-hmm. a few other folks. I'm um, just talking about general security stuff. And I also believe I have a time slot at uh, either 11 or 12 on Saturday. Um, and I also just uh, just got announced. I sponsored uh, 15 kids uh, for for the charity there. So the for the for the Friends of Ocean uh, Academy, I sponsored 15 kids for the the Belize fundraiser as well. So he's got a nice little jump start to go forward uh, with uh, before we start on Friday before the the event even starts. So amazing, yeah, fantastic. Is there anything else you'd like to kind of let the world know about for the to our listeners? What are your plans for the future? I suppose. It's yeah, that's interesting. Good. Mm-hmm. Keep helping people, uh, you know, expand, expand our companies to, to you know, my, my whole goal with, with starting Trusted Tech and, and Binary was just to, to be the best company out there helping people and helping the world be more secure. So we want to continue with that theme, continue helping out. I'm not starting another company anytime soon. I'm very content in where I'm at uh, with, with two companies. But, okay. uh, you know, continue to help people, um, you know, continue to, to, to try to grow the security issue, to grow, grow new people coming into the industry. We just uh, announced recently that we have a, a new mentorship program where we're going to be onboarding a substantial amount of interns and, and, and uh, new people to industry to help them grow and, and experience working at Amazing. you know one of the one of the greater uh, you know security companies out there I think um, and so you know helping more people get into industry has been been really a big focus of my goal but uh, you know for me it's always about t- spending time with my family balancing work and life and, and all that other stuff um, you know it's, it's it's amazing to see what um, you know what's been happening with the industry lately of, of, of people helping one another charity events uh, you know 3d printing masks I mean just mm. watching the security industry grow to an industry that is, is helping others is, is my ultimate dream and uh, it's actually happening so for me I'm, I'm, I'm content and just kind of seeing where, where it goes but I really appreciate you two having me on uh, you know I appreciate you taking your time out of your day to, to put these on and to, to reach the masses and and share your experiences it's it's always awesome oh, d- definitely we're, we're absolutely privileged to have you on board I mean the, the- the, the fact that you agreed to it blew my mind because you're you're kind of look up to you in the industry and things like that and it's it's amazing just to kind of reach out to someone going, do you want to be on the podcast and you're like yeah sure and it's like oh fuck right cool right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah anytime amazing. i mean and it goes out to anybody you know, i i really uh happy to come on and help in any way i can or you know if you're if you're struggling with something i'm always happy to talk through what you're struggling with maybe there's a way for me to help out you know whatever i can do to help that's that's uh you know as you mentioned you just want to leave this place a little bit better than you left it or when you yeah. when you first came that's it. Dave, thank you so much for your time and very good luck with the future and all your different escapades. Thank you guys. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for Bye. listening, folks. Right.